The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, verses 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16 in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, I read those uh, two verses in order that uh, we may consider together not only what we are told there, and which we were considering in detail last Sunday morning, but in order that we may take a general view of what the Apostle has been telling us in detail from the first verse of this chapter. This whole section, as we have seen repeatedly, is a very important and vital section. The Apostle, having laid down his great doctrine, his great series of doctrines in the first three chapters of the Epistle, now comes to application and is very practical. And the first thing he takes up is the whole question of the church and especially the vital matter of the unity of the spirit in the church. His exhortation is that we should endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And in order to help us to do that, he has been expounding to us this great doctrine of the Christian church and especially in terms of of his favorite illustration and analogy of the church as the body of Christ. Now, we've been going through it at leisure. We've been working out the details. As I say, we were engaged last Sunday in working out this extraordinary statement in verse 16, which at first seems so complicated, but which we found really becomes comparatively simple as we hold on to his central principle, which is this unique relationship between the church and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is comparable to the relationship between the body and the head, or the head and the body as parts of the body. Now, I feel that it is essential that we should pick out certain important principles which we have been looking at as we have been working out this great section. I do so because of its intense practical importance and its intense practical relevance at the present time. There is a sense in which this whole section, taken perhaps in connection with the 17th chapter of John's Gospel, is one of the most urgently relevant sections of the Holy Scripture at this present time. There is this great new interest in the church and in this whole question of unity. So it behoves us, I say, as Christian people, not only to have an intelligent understanding of these matters, but to be clear in our minds as to the teaching of the scripture, lest we be carried away by specious arguments and by vague generalities and a sentimental preaching of unity, which may very well put us into a position which is actually contradictory of that which we find taught in the Bible itself. But I have a subsidiary 
reason for emphasizing these principles. It does seem to me that we can only understand the present condition of the Christian church and only understand what has been happening in the first half of this century to the church as long as we understand the teaching of this section. I suggest to you that the only adequate key to the understanding of the present condition of the Christian church, speaking throughout the, the state of the church throughout the whole world, is to be found here. It is because we have not understood this doctrine that things are as they are. I shall therefore of necessity be dealing with matters which are highly controversial. But to avoid controversial matters in a spirit of fear is again to deny the scriptures. God has not given us the spirit of fear, says Paul to Timothy, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, discipline. Therefore, we must face difficulties and examine them in the light of the scriptures. So I select certain big principles, which are obviously the most outstanding principles and the one, therefore, which are of the most urgent importance. Let's start, for instance, with this great question of unity. The thing that the Apostle himself starts with, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, he starts by saying that this whole matter of unity is of supreme importance. And we must never lose sight of it. There is a tendency in some, perhaps, we all have various tendencies, a tendency in some to ignore the principle of unity because they so see the false notions of unity, they tend to go to the other extreme of saying that unity doesn't matter, but unity does matter. If the church is the body of Christ, unity is essential, it is vital. The New Testament leaves us in no doubt about this. Schism is sin, to be guilty of schism and of uh, wrong division is sinful. The apostle makes that perfectly clear in 1 Corinthians 12 and in other places. Our Lord's prayer was that they might be one. Very well, they're, they're, we needn't stay with this. The thing is so perfectly obvious. But I say it should be extremely obvious to all of us who have ever considered this the doctrine of the church in terms of this analogy of the body. If once you see that the church is like the body, well, there's no need to argue about unity. There is a unity in the body. That's what makes it the body. And as the apostle says, for the hand to say to the foot, I have no need of thee, is just to be ridiculous. It's to be monstrous. You can't do that sort of thing. Therefore, we start by saying that quite clearly, we should all be intensely concerned about this question of unity. But then, having said that, we go on to say this. There is nothing, therefore, more important than that we should understand the true nature of unity. Because there can be wrong ideas with respect to unity. Unity is essential. Indeed, there is a unity in the body of Christ, in spite of us, as it were. This unity of the Spirit. But it is meant to manifest itself. And therefore, the most important thing for us is to be clear as to the character, the nature of this unity. What is it that brings it into being? What is it that hinders it? Now, the apostle, I think, makes certain things very plain at this point in terms of this analogy of the body. 
I've said it before, I must repeat it. We must never think of unity in the church in a mere external or mechanical or organizational manner. Obviously, from this illustration, that is quite wrong. And yet I think you'll agree that that is how it's being done in the main at the present time. People start by saying, now, here are these big denominations. You see, at once they're starting in terms of organizations. And they say, the question is now, how can all these be brought together? Now, if this analogy of the body is right, we've already gone wrong. Because a body is not a collection of parts. That's not the way to approach this whole question of unity. It must never be thought of mechanically. Unity, if this illustration of Paul's is right, is never a matter of addition. Adding this to that and that to another, that's already wrong. We've approached it the wrong way around, and all our thinking must inevitably lead to disaster. Or let me put that in a different form. According to this analogy, we must never think of unity merely in terms of the removal of divisions. Now there I think you'll see again is something that uh, tends to be done. Ah, they say here is the divided church, the greatest tragedy in the world today. The one question is, how can we get rid of the divisions? You see, it's a negative approach. They think that by removing divisions you produce unity, but you don't according to this picture. That is a sheer impossibility. Now that is the fatal error of starting with things as they are, with the organizations and the sects and the denominations and so on, and trying to do something about them. Now, according to this picture, that's all wrong, and we must go back further to the beginning and say, no, no, our first business is to understand the nature of the church, and therefore the nature of the unity in the church. And that leads me to the next point, the next principle, which is this. That unity must never be the first thing. Unity is not something in and of itself. The unity of the church is always the result of something else. So you don't start with unity. You start with the nature of the church. And then see that the unity is inevitable. You don't put up unity as an end in and of itself. No, there is something more important. The body is the important thing, and the unity is only one of the characteristics of the body. Now, these points, surely, are absolutely fundamental with regard to this whole matter. And I am suggesting that it is because all this is so tragically forgotten that we find ourselves in this modern confusion. In other words, I am bold enough to make this assertion that the way to face the whole situation is not simply to look at the position as it is and say, now what can we do about this? I suggest we've got to be much more radical. And we may have to say to ourselves, very well, let these big denominations and groupings be what they like and do what they like. Our business is to discover the real nature of the Christian church. What if they've all gone astray? I wonder whether we are not more or less in the same position as Martin Luther found himself in the 16th century. When he saw that he'd got to go right back to fundamentals and to the beginning, let the Roman church be what it may. That's not the question. But something new as it were. 
the radical New Testament view of the church. It may well be that we shall have to come back to that. It may well be that if we allow our thinking to be determined by an existing situation, we shall be so bound by it that our whole conception of the church will be wrong. We'll then begin to indulge in mechanics. We'll try to lower barriers. We'll try to improve a little here and there. And yet the whole thing may still be wrong. Very well, then. The vital question, I say, is what is it that determines unity? And the apostle I suggest in this section has been making it perfectly plain and clear. The first essential is this, is true belief in him. He is reminded us of it in verses 4, 5, and 6. One body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, that surely should be self-evident to us in the study of this epistle to the Ephesians. When does the apostle begin to talk about uh, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Well, it isn't in chapter 1, you see. It's in chapter 4. We've already had three tremendous chapters, and then he says, Therefore, therefore endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, in the light of all he's been saying in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But the church today puts unity in chapter 1. It starts with it as if it's everything. And men are preaching unity and not preaching Christ. Preaching the church and not preaching salvation. All the talk is about unity. And men and women are not saved. And the church is not being built up. That's because they don't realize that unity comes out of something else. Is the sequence, the corollary of something else. So I say we must start with true belief and true doctrine. Here it is in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. You don't put love before truth. You speak the truth in love. You don't merely speak lovingly. You're not simply nice and friendly and matey. No, no. You speak the truth in love. The truth must always come first. And there can be no argument about this. I'm not prepared to discuss unity with a man who denies the deity of Christ. He may call himself a Christian. I have nothing in common with him. If he doesn't acknowledge this one Lord, born of the Virgin, who worked his miracles, who died an atoning death, and who rose literally from the grave in the body, I'm not going to discuss unity with such a man. I have no unity. There is no basis for unity. It's a sheer waste of time. It's a travesty of the Scriptures to do so. The truth. And all the great doctrine, therefore, of chapters 1, 2, and 3. The sovereignty of God, who hath called us and chosen us before the foundation of the world. The unique deity of Christ, his shedding of his blood for us and our sins on Calvary's cross. Or us ourselves as dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, the creatures of lust and passion and vice, children of wrath even as others. I have no fellowship with a man who says that because we are born in this country that we are born Christians. I cannot have fellowship with a man who tells me that because I was christened as a baby, I must, I must be a Christian, that that makes me a Christian. I cannot in the light of this doctrine. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of time. These things are absolutely vital and central. 
and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and this tremendous doctrine of the Christian church. That goes first, speaking the truth in love. Therefore, in the light of all this, yes, but if you don't accept all that, it's no use going on to talk about maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is no unity. We are disagreed about the very vitals and fundamentals of the faith. My dear friends, isn't it time that we became clear about these things and said them? I have no unity. It is impossible for me to be in a state of unity with a man who denies the unique deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the miracles, the atoning sacrificial death and the resurrection and the person of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. I can't pray with him because we are not praying in the same way. Paul says the way to pray is this. We both, he says, have access through him by one spirit unto the Father. And it's the only way. Very well then, let us not waste our time and our energy by talking about unity before we have spoken about these doctrines, about this belief. And then the second thing is, of course, our right relationship to the Lord and our union with him. We are not to have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. We are not, says John in his second epistle, to have any fellowship with or to bid God's speed to a man who doesn't preach and hold this truth. And in the same way, I say, we are to understand this wonderful doctrine of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Union is not a matter of organizations. It's rather a question of being a branch in the vine. It's being a limb, a member of a body. The whole thing, I say, has got to be looked upon in that way. This doctrine of the church as the body of Christ makes that quite inevitable and beyond any dispute. The question is, not can I have fellowship with this person or that, but am I in him? Is he in him? That's where we start. Am I a branch in the vine? For if I'm not, I cannot have fellowship with those who are branches in the vine, and vice versa. Very well, there are some thoughts in passing on the question of unity. But come, let us look at a second great matter, the whole question of life. And again, how important is this? Life again must come before unity. Because unity, after all, is nothing but a result of life. What makes my body one, what establishes the organic unity of the body is the life that is in the body. So, again, we must put this question of life in the forefront. And what the Apostle tells us is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the life of the church. And he is the source of all energy and vitality and power in the church. Now notice how he puts it here. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted. Now we went into that last Sunday in detail, so I, I needn't do that this morning, but I'm simply emphasizing this great principle. That the life of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that without him there is no life in the church. 
and the church is dead. You notice how he made that perfectly plain himself in that great statement which we read out of John's Gospel, chapter 15. The life is in the vine, and it goes into the branches. He is the life, and without this union, this organic, vital relationship, the church is lifeless, and the church is dead. It's so obvious, isn't it? Yes, it's obvious in theory, but it's something that one can so easily forget. And I want to make the suggestion that the whole explanation of the state of the Christian church today and during the last 50 years is that she hasn't understood this. The church has confused between activity and life. And there's all the difference in the world between activity and life. It's the difference between what a machine does and what a man does. It's the difference between a machine and a plant or a flower. That's the difference. You remember the Apostle in Galatians 5 contrasts what he calls the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. There it is absolutely perfectly. The flesh works. It produces works like a machine, as it were. Ah, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. Always that distinction. Everything spiritual is vital. It's the result of life and of growth. I remember a person once making a statement to me which illustrated this to me very perfectly. She was talking about a certain church where she'd been visiting, staying with some relatives. And she said, you know, that church I've been going to, she said, it's full of life. And I inquired for the manifestations of this life. And I discovered that this was it. That something went on almost every night of the week in the church. I said, well, what goes on? And then I began to hear about the dramas and the concerts and the clubs and the sports and the entertainment And a thousand and one things. Life, said this person. No, no, that wasn't life. That was activity. That's not the life of the church. A church that has such activities isn't a live church. Maybe a dead church, but full of works and of activity. May I use an illustration to make it still more plain and clear, which I once ventured to use because it seemed to me to put the thing very plainly? Most of you here, many of you at dinner this morning are old enough to remember something that happened. When was it? In the early 30s or somewhere at that time. When we read in our newspapers of uh, two men, Mr. Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon. They'd been working in Egypt, digging, searching out old tombs. And they'd been burrowing in and working for months and months. At last one day they got through... And they came there to a kind of coffin. It seemed to be almost perfectly preserved, and they realized it was the coffin of an old Egyptian king called Tutankhamun. And they opened it, and there, to their amazement and astonishment, they found the body of that king who'd been dead thousands of years, perfectly preserved. Though he'd been dead so long, the body showed no signs of decomposition whatsoever. No blemishes, no pollution. Perfectly preserved. Why, well, of course, it was because the Egyptians had that system of embalming. Uh, When uh, such a person died, they treated him with various uh, chemicals, and because of the nature of the atmosphere in Egypt, that plus the effect of the chemicals meant that you could preserve a body as long as you liked, without any signs of decay and decomposition. Here's the point. They found the body of Tutankhamun perfectly preserved. 
Yes, but the body was also perfectly dead. There were no obvious signs of decay and decomposition. No, but if you'd asked him a question, he couldn't have answered you. Quite useless. Unable to manifest life and power and activity. Unable to help. Perfectly preserved. Perfectly dead at the same time. Does that make it plain, I wonder? I have a terrible feeling that the Christian church has just been preserving the institution for the last 50 years. We've been concerned about external appearances. It's an amazing thing to me, but it is a fact, you know. I go around this country preaching, and I find that the debts on churches and chapels are lower than they've ever been. But what are the spiritual conditions? The finances seem to be better, though the number of people is fewer, is, is, is smaller. Have we not been looking at the whole thing in the wrong way? And that is why, you see, the church made that fatal mistake about the middle of last century when she began to introduce the institutional idea. She said, how are we to hold the young people? They don't like sermons, but they like drama, they like entertainment, they like games. Institutional church comes in, and for a while it seemed to work. The people were held. But what about the position by now? And why did they ever do a thing like that? Well, they did it because they'd never understood this doctrine of the Christian church. You cannot preserve the body of Christ by such means and methods. Christ is the life. And if there isn't a vital relationship to him, there will be no life and the church will be dead. So you see, it is vital that we should be clear about this whole conception of life. But the church isn't talking about life, she's talking about numbers. She says, ah, if only we could get rid of these barriers and divisions. If only we could all be one. Then the world would listen and marvelous things would happen. Is that a spiritual way of thinking? Is it mere numbers that matter? Is it the size of the church that counts? I say that that's a contradiction of the whole teaching of the Bible. You go back and read your Old Testament, and you'll find that there is one doctrine there which seems to run through from beginning to end. It is the doctrine of the remnant. Just a handful, sometimes one man only and nobody else. And God does everything through a remnant, through one man. You see how worldly we've become in our thinking, how mechanical. The Lord Jesus Christ left the church in the hands, as it were, of twelve men, just a little handful of nobodies. The doctrine of the remnant, God using individuals, we've forgotten that, and read the history of the church since the end of the New Testament canon. And what again do you find? Well, you see, you find exactly the same thing. Athanasius contra mundum. That one man standing against the whole world for vital doctrine, and he prevailed. Why, well, the power of Christ was in him. He was linked to the head. Luther stands again alone after all the centuries of deadness and of Catholicism. One man, what can he do? Well, because he's linked and because the power of the head is in him. He can do everything. The remnant. What matters, I say, is not numbers. What matters is our relationship to him. What matters is the purity of the doctrine, the purity of the life. What matters is that the sap is coming into us from the vine. That's the way to look at it. So I mustn't ask, why, what is the size of this denomination and that? What can we do? Can we make them one and then tremendous things will happen? But tremendous things don't happen and they never will. We are facing it in the wrong way. What we must ask is this, am I full of the life of the vine? 
And he must ask the same, and until we are, anything we may do will lead to nothing. Without me, said Christ, you can do nothing. And when will we realize that? When will we realize that apart from his activity, all our activities in the end lead to nothing? The life is the thing that matters, and the life is in him. And our first question should be to know that we are so vitally connected to him that these channels, these bands of supply that we talked about last Sunday in verse 16 are open and that the power, the strength and the life and the sustenance are coming into us. And that leads me to another principle which follows, I think you'll agree, with simple direct logic. It is this, that it is the head who acts. It isn't the body that acts, it's the head that acts. The head acts, of course, through the body. But nevertheless, it is the head who acts. It is he who decides and determines when to act and how to act. And our business is just to be usable in his hands. He is the originator, he is the actor. And we are merely the vehicles or the channels through which his activity passes. I look at the history of the church again in the last 50 to 100 years, and what I see standing out so boldly is a complete failure to remember that principle. I see again this tremendous activity, yes, but it's the activity of the members, not the activity of the head. May I again use an illustration that I've used before because I can't think of a better one. What my body is to me, the church is to the risen Lord. What do I want my body to do? What do I want my hands and my fingers to do? What's the function of all these members? Is it to act instead of me? Is it to act on their own and independently? Of course it isn't. The business of my body is simply to be here at my disposal, so that if I, with my brain, decide to do something, I initiate a movement and I act through the body, through the members. I don't want the bodies, the members to do things apart from me or instead of me. Now, here is my illustration. The fact of the matter is, you know, that if the members or the parts or the limbs of a man's body begin to act independently of him, he's in a diseased condition. That is convulsion. Have you ever seen a child have convulsions? Have you ever seen a grown-up man have convulsions? Have you seen a man with his arm moving wildly and perhaps his leg and his head? He doesn't want it. They're acting on their own, apart from him. He's suffering from convulsions. Tremendous activity. If you measured the energy the poor man is putting out, it would be tremendous. But there's no point in it. There's no purpose in it. It's a waste of energy. A man in convulsions is tremendously active. I say the output of energy is amazing. Yes, but it's no good. It's disease. It leads to nothing. It's utterly valueless. And you know the church is the body of Christ. And the question is, what is the nature and the character of so many of our activities? What is their spiritual value? What is their spiritual result? What do they lead to? The fact that a church is tremendously active doesn't of necessity prove that it's right. It may be all wrong. A church may be living on her own energy and doing things on her own and deliberately ignoring the head and not being subservient to him. 
Isn't it about time we began to ask these questions? I suppose there is a sense in which the Christian church has never been so active as she's been during the last hundred years. You read the history and compare it with what went before. I'm quite convinced that if the Protestant fathers and some of the Puritans could come back and look at the modern church, they'd think for a week or so that they'd never done anything at all. They hadn't got brotherhoods and sisterhoods and uh, then divisions according to various ages and this organization and that and clubs and leagues and badges. They've got none of this at all. And they might very well think that they'd never done anything. Ah, but it depends, you see, how you estimate energy. And the way to judge of energy is not by the mere output of energy. It's by the results, that to which it leads, the product. Isn't it time that the church began to face these questions? Are we not fooling ourselves with our organizations and activities? What's happening to the church? That's the question. Now, here is a principle I'd like to put for your discussion and consideration. Isn't it at this point that we see this great question arising of the difference between an evangelistic campaign and a revival? There are two fundamental outlooks. Now, let me put them like this. This is how they work. Men begin to realize that the church is in a lifeless condition and that not very much is happening. They see that things have become slack or that perhaps things have gone wrong. Now then, they meet to consider the situation. And there are two possible causes. Here is one. They may decide together to have an evangelistic campaign. They say, we must do something. We must put the church on the map again. Uh, therefore, we must organize an evangelistic campaign, put up big posters outside the church, advertise in the press, do a thousand and one things, get the local mayor to come along and have a great civic occasion. Fanfare trumpets, let's do something to call attention of the world to the church. Let's bring the people in. They decide solemnly to do that in order to deal with the state of the church. An evangelistic campaign. That's one way of approaching it. There's another way of approaching it. And the other way of approaching it is this. Is that the church meets together and says, well, that is the position. And then somebody asks the vital question. Why is this the position? The first question should never be, what are we going to do? The first question should be, why is it like this? Why are the churches empty as they are? Why doesn't the church count in this country? Why is the position so different from what it once was? That's the first question. And then, you see, when you begin to ask that, you're on a different track altogether. Because you find the answers of these, well, has our doctrine been right? I wonder whether the churches are empty because so many pulpits during the last hundred years have been denying the Christian faith. I wonder whether it isn't this higher criticism that came in. Whether it wasn't that Unitarianism that came in. Christ only a man. Jesus of history, not the Christ of Paul. Isn't it that, I wonder? I wonder whether it isn't the denial of the person of the Holy Spirit. The denial of the atonement. The denial of the miraculous. The ceasing to pray. The ceasing to practice the Christian life. Respectability and all these other things. And wealth and learning and knowledge. I wonder whether it isn't this. Haven't we lost contact with the head? Haven't the channels become blocked? You see the different approach? And if you adopt the second, you see what you say is this. This church is no church to advertise itself to the world. It's not fit to be advertised. Our first task is to be right ourselves. 
Our first business is to know that the life of the head is flowing through us. So we go down on our knees and we repent and confess our sins and we acknowledge with shame our transgressions. We cry for mercy and compassion. We ask the Lord to send his spirit upon us in mighty reviving power. Now the second was the way adopted by the church throughout the centuries. You read the history of the church. And you will find, roughly speaking, until the middle of last century, that it's a history of revivals. But you will also find that since about the middle of the last century, it hasn't been the history of revivals, it's been the history of evangelistic campaigns. Now, that's just a sheer fact of history. How often do you hear of revival? How often do you pray for revival? Ah, you see, the tragedy is this, that what we do is this. We meet and have our committees. We may have a lunch to set up the committee. That's the way it's done these days. Not in the church and in a meeting for prayer. Have a great lunch and then you'd come to business and you decide. And we draw up our plans and then we ask God to bless it. We, we have a horrible term called prayer backing. Prayer backing. Prayer is something that backs what we decide. Instead of starting with prayer and discovering his will, putting ourselves at his disposal and waiting upon him. It is the head who acts. And you see the result of the two different methods. If you trust to your evangelistic campaigns, of course you'll get individual conversions. There's no question about that. You always do. But this is the question that we should ask. What is the overall picture? In spite of all the evangelistic campaigns and all the individual conversions, the whole state of the church has continued to go down and down and down. Whereas if you read the story of the great revivals in the church throughout the centuries, you'll find that in a revival more happens in one day than can happen in 50 years of our own activities and efforts. And the whole church is revived. The whole church is stimulated. Revival! That is the need for revival means again being in the head, receiving of him. He acting and we at his disposal. So that brings me to my last principle, which is just this. That the call of the New Testament to us primarily is not to do anything, but to be something. One thing that is necessary is that you and I should be usable. It is you and I who are hindrances to his working. We are not usable as we ought to be. I again challenge you, read the lives of all the men who've been used of God in the most mighty and signal manner, and you'll always find that it's happened in that way. They, first of all, had an intense struggle. What was the struggle? Well, the struggle was with themselves and with their own abilities and powers. And a point came when they were crushed to their knees and realized their impotence and submitted themselves utterly and absolutely to him and were filled with the power of his Holy Spirit. You'll find that in the life of Whitfield. You'll find it in the life of Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Moody. Yes, every one of them. Howell Harris in Wales, Daniel Rowland, every single man amongst them. It all happened in that way. They came to that point when they saw that they were relying on their own abilities. 
And it was only when all that had gone and they realized their utter, absolute dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ, when they came and said, yes, you're right, apart from thee we can do nothing. Oh, we've got activities, we've got a little bit of success here and there, but we see nothing happening in a big way, nothing really vital. Thou must act, thou must save, and thou alone. And so they were baptized with the Spirit and power, and they went out men transformed. And amazing and mighty things happened, not temporary things, but permanent things. Things which have left their mark upon the history of the church. Things which revived the whole church and built up the people of God. It is for him to act, not for us. So my first question must not be, what can I do next? But rather, what am I? Am I being filled according to the measure of my capacity with this divine energy? It comes from the head of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Let every one of us ask that question. Let every one of us make certain that we are filled with this energy. And let us not only ask for it for ourselves, let us pray for it for the whole church. I exhort you in the name of God, pray for revival. Don't simply pray that God will bless some enterprise that you are engaged in. Don't simply stop at praying for the missionaries. Pray for revival in this country. So that we shall bring an end to the scandal of the present time, which is this. That friends coming here from the colonies would always thought of this country as a Christian country, are appalled when they come to London, and are almost tempted to give up the Christian faith, believing that it isn't true. Let us therefore pray for revival here in this homeland. Pray for revival in the church everywhere. Pray that the whole church may vitally be connected with him, the head. That his life and his power may come into us and upon us and may work through us. And the church may be revived and the sinners outside may be converted. He is the head. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Amen.